Hello and welcome to today's episode. This podcast is brought to you by IAFN's Isaac Project, funded by the Office on Violence Against Women. The International Association of Forensic Nurses is the recognized authority on forensic nursing, promoting universal access to care for patients impacted by violence and trauma. The Indigenous Sexual Assault and Abuse Clearinghouse Project has a mission to offer technical assistance, training, and education to providers serving sexual sexual assault survivors, and tribal communities. I am your host, Blaze Bell, lifelong Alaskan dedicated to helping fellow survivors heal from trauma. Today's episode features Leslie Hammer. She is a forensic examiner in Anchorage, Alaska, currently in private practice with experience in forensic casework, lab supervision, and examination instruction. She is the current education planner and a past president of the International Association for Identification and a member of the U.S. DOJ Forensic Laboratory Needs Technical Working Group. Today, Leslie Hammer shares the role of a forensic examiner in the journey of a survivor. Let's dive in. Um, I am here today with Leslie Hammer, a forensic analyst, and I'm just really grateful that you're here today to share share parts of your job, your experience with your part in the journey of a survivor. So thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. So I would love to hear, you know, what's your piece of the puzzle when it comes to someone who's been assaulted and kind of the journey they go through from forensic nurse to uh, law enforcement, a rape crisis center, you know, there's all these different people potentially involved. And so when there is a crime scene as a part of this, where does a forensic analyst step in and what does that, what does that look like? Well, there can be some overlap with the forensic evidence in, in any case. So uh, evidence might be collected by police officers um, at the scene of a crime, or a forensic analyst specializing in evidence such as fingerprints or shoe prints or tire tracks, trace evidence like hairs and fibers, um, may be also a part of that scene evidence collection. And those are more people who are scientists that would be coming from a crime lab. So it's another type of person that might be involved in the evidence involved with a sexual assault. Okay. And I know for me personally, with my assault, it was a home invasion. And so there definitely was a whole crime scene element after the fact. And um, I'm curious, how do you differentiate the evidence um, that's taken by law enforcement versus an analyst stepping in? It's, it, it really isn't, doesn't make a difference to the evidence as long as somebody competent is collecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, all that evidence would be considered part of the case. It's just in different cases, depending on um, different jurisdictions really approach crime scenes differently. But um, as long as the evidence is collected, it's packaged and preserved, and then it will be, and we're talking about, again, physical evidence like fingerprints, trace, Um, shoe prints, that kind of evidence will be packaged and cataloged and then sent to a crime lab for specialists to examine each type of evidence appropriately. Okay. And so I know that your job has morphed over the years and you do 
different things today than maybe you've done in the past. But what did that look like, you know, when it comes to like, were you the person in the lab that it was sent to? Were you part of recording things? Like paint us a picture. <laughs> yes. Um, in, in my history, my 25 years of being a forensic analyst, I have been a crime scene responder. So I have collected evidence at crime scenes. I've been a fingerprint analyst, so compared fingerprints. I've been a controlled substances an substance analyst, so um, drug analysis, um, shoe prints, tire tracks, comparisons. And, and now privately, I'm really focused on that area. That's where I've done research and published articles. And so as a, as a private examiner now, I um, focus on shoe print and tire track evidence specifically. Wow. Can you dive into that a little bit? Uh, it might not be directly related to what we're talking about, but it could be um, as far as the shoe print and tire tracks. So what are you looking for in that case? And I mean, if you've written papers and talked about this, there must be a lot to it. So how do you see that work playing into solving crimes? It's, it's a really interesting type of evidence because if you think about it just philosophically, there's it's hard to imagine a crime where there isn't a shoe print or a tire track. Somebody had to get there and somebody had to walk around through the scene. Um, unfortunately, it's an evidence that doesn't get collected enough. It's, it's on the floor. Um, if there's an emergency first responder response, of course, um, they have to pay attention to saving life and property. And so, right. you know, it's, it's unfortunately in a difficult spot. Um, shoe print evidence and, and sometimes tire tracks are right in the driveway. So, but uh, there's still a lot of, um, you know, a lot of good reason to still look for them. They can be very hard to spot. They can be in dust. Some of the best uh, shoe print impressions are in dust. And you know how, when the sun comes through your window and all of a sudden, you know, at an angle and all of a sudden mm -hmm. you can see all kinds of dust on your table. That's pretty much how shoe prints um, in dust pop out. We look at them with a, with a flashlight, with oblique light. So you might not even know they're there and then they're, they can Ooh. be really, really good quality. Oh, that, that is pretty interesting. Yeah. Wow. So I would love to hear if you have this information, and it could be different from place to place, but um, I know one thing that comes up a lot with survivors is wanting to have an understanding of the time frame of things like evidence and um, you know analyzing those things. And I know for myself, I was very impressed and I found it very fascinating, like all the things they found um, and were able to determine that I would have never even thought to look for. So what kind of time goes into a case from from your point of view uh well the the crime scene can be extremely time consuming um just to be thorough everything needs to be documented there's methods of documentation uh, just photography for example there's taking the overall photographs for context and then closer photographs and then each piece of evidence um, is photographed close up before it's even collected um, looking for fingerprints at a crime scene can, is very painstaking. There's the whole, just so we were talking about with shoe prints, uh, fingerprints, there's the visual search with, with light, forensic light source or white light or um, different wavelengths of light that can be painstakingly, you know, take a, a long time to be um, 
look very thoroughly for fingerprints or shoe prints and then determining the best way to collect them, to enhance them, lift them, cast them. It just depends um, on the, you know, the nature of the piece of evidence. Um, other types of evidence are just collected, uh, like, for example, tape lifts to collect uh, hairs or fibers. So there's, there's a lot of different methods. Of course, I could launch into a two-hour talk about that, but um, they, in, in reality, just that, that painstaking process where everything has to be thoroughly documented, not just picked up, but recorded where exactly it came from, where what it was located on and where it was in the crime scene, that in itself takes a lot of time. Then, of course, having all that packaged and cataloged evidence getting to a crime lab and unfortunately waiting its turn often um, to be worked. And that just depends on the, the lab or the section's backlog. And so that wait time, unfortunately, can, can um, vary from very short to very long. And then once an analyst is working on a particular case, um, you know, that can really vary too from a few hours to actually weeks working on, on um, a particular piece of evidence in a case, just, just depending on how extensive it is. Wow. Uh, I think that's really interesting because there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes and there's so many different elements to a criminal investigation. And so getting kind of a little more insight into what's going on, I think helps too. And it's hard as a survivor to necessarily have an understanding of that. And if you're just thinking, solve my case, you know, or, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, that's nothing really compared to the court system and how long that journey takes on its own. So um, thank you for sharing that. So have you had to testify in court a lot? Like, uh, yes, yeah. every type of evidence I've mentioned, I've testified in court. It certainly doesn't happen with every case, um, but yes, I've done my share of testimony. Yeah, I would imagine, I would imagine. And I, I would think too, that it probably feels quite rewarding if the hard work you've put in helps to solve these different crimes, which I'm sure it does. Yes, it is. You know, as a forensic analyst, um, the focus isn't, it, it is on solving the crime. It's on, it's on making sure the work is done so that evidence can show the truth of, right. of whatever that happened. So, um, of, you know, of that piece of evidence. That's really the focus of a forensic analyst. And uh, I think that helps stay objective. Uh, you know, I mean, our focus is to stay objective rather than be focused on the crime, but certainly, mm -hmm. you know, the I and, and other professional forensic professionals are, are very uh, understanding of the importance of the, the work that they do. Yeah. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I, I normally ask about trauma-informed care, though I would imagine with your role, there's not a lot of, I'm sure, interaction with any of the individuals involved, the victims or the perpetrators. It's probably very just more in the lab, scientific, behind the scenes. Is that fair? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you have much crossover? Like, 
again, you know, there's this whole lineup of different care providers um, in these cases. Which of those care providers do you often cross paths with, or is your scope just pretty narrow? Uh, and if I'm not understanding that, you know, who, who is qualified as a care provider, but what is an investigator in that, that role? Yeah, that absolutely. Yeah. Basically any professional that enters the survivor's life mm -hmm. on their journey, you know, would be, yeah. So, uh, we, the forensic analysts do have contact with investigators because it's how, um, decisions about what type of evidence, what needs to be worked first for example, or um, you know, more quickly for investigative reasons, possibly um, if there has to be a kind of hierarchy decided about when evidence is worked, there's a, there's some there's some uh, interaction with investigators, um, or if if um, more evidence needs to be collected, or say here's a shoe print, that's the kind of shoe you're going to be looking out for. You know, the, we can interact with them that way. And then forensic analysts, of course, interact with attorneys um, in, in um, getting ready to, test, to testify in um, also some of those evidence decisions. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing all of this. I know that it's a specific scope of work that you do. And just on a more personal note, can you share a little bit about the work you've done in the past and where what kind of work you do today and kind of what what your career maybe has sort of looked like over the years and how it's morphed into where you are now. Yes, it's been a very interesting journey. I actually started my I get professional life being a high school chemistry teacher mm. and then moved into forensics um, about 25 years ago. And when I first went in, I was a fingerprint analyst and crime scene responder. And then uh, because of my chemistry background, also added drug analysis to, to that, um, the type of casework that I do. And then just really getting, got involved in uh, footwear and tire track evidence, um, was able to do some research projects in that. And uh, I was I took a sabbatical about 15 years in and got a master's degree in forensics in Scotland, in Glasgow, Scotland. Oh, fun. Was able to do some, some projects with the RCMP in Canada, or one project in particular on barefoot evidence. So basically mm -hmm. I've had a wide variety of what we refer to as pattern evidence, um, you know, comparing things, um, comparing things that make impressions with the thing that made the impression. And it's, although the, the chemistry work is, is interesting, the instrumentation is interesting, this pattern evidence comparison is just a fascinating line of work. And that's what I've ended up focusing on. Wow. It sounds like you've had a really interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, oh. Blaze. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, what, what is it that you do today? I know, I think you're in more of a consultant realm. I know you are part of an organiza organization and do travel with that. So yeah, what is it today that you're doing? So, well, today the, yeah, the type of evidence I'm focused on is footwear and tire track, but I do a lot of teaching, a lot of, of training, training other examiners, um, training people to collect it. I do um, a lot of national 
I have a lot of national involvement in standard setting for the work that we do. So there's uh, several organizations that um, and committees, gov uh, federal government committees um, that work on setting standards for the work that we do. And I do quite a bit of volunteer work with that. And then I'm involved in a professional organization um, called the International Association for Identification, which is the largest international organization for pattern evidence in crime scene mm. um, people. I organize all their workshops and lectures currently for wow. our annual conference, which is a big job and uh, was the president a few years ago. So definitely a lot of professional involvement. I really think it's important to ensure that what we do is reliable. Um, and yeah. through those professional efforts, it's, uh, you know, that's definitely something I see as very important. The, the research, the standards, the, you know, having a, a high bar for the accuracy of what we do. Wow. Well, they are lucky to have you. I think that's it all just to me, that's just very fascinating work. And I'm you and I met because we are on a board together called for a group called Victims for Justice. And so through that, I've been able to see just your professionalism, how thorough you are, the questions you ask that, you know, I just I can only imagine how you are in your field. And I think that's really incredible. So thank you so much, Leslie, for being here today, for taking the time out to talk with us about this. And we'll include some links maybe to the group you're with now and anything else that might be of value and interest to the people listening. So thanks again. And I can't wait to talk to you more. Thank you, Blaze. You're so good at what you do. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Office on Violence Against Women. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in the presentation are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Justice, the Office on Violence Against Women, or the International Association of Forensic Nurses. If you would like to connect with an advocate after listening to this episode, please call 800 656 Hope. That's 800-656-4673 to be routed to an advocate in your area 24-7. Or go to rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org for more info or live chat.